The sermon this morning is from Luke 2, 22, all the way to 52. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying, that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, and in stature, and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. All right, kiddos, off you go. Oh, oh, they're staying with us today. I knew that the whole time. I was just testing you to see you guys passed the test. Well done. You're already off to a good start. 
All right, let's pray. Go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for children. We thank you for the aged. We thank you for the, uh, the folks in between. Lord, we thank you that you've spoken to us, that you've sent your son, and that we can know him and enjoy him, our great joy and treasure. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, well, this week, Andy and I, as well as Joey and Paige, had the great privilege of attending uh, the, the uh, Treasuring Christ Together Network's uh, Pastor and Wives re- Retreat in uh, Sarasota, Florida, Suffering for Jesus on the Beach this week. And uh, first off, let me just say thanks to the members of Restoration Church for making it possible, in part, for me and Andy and Joey and Paige to go. Uh, but uh, it's a wonderful time, an encouraging time of word and prayer and fellowship uh, amongst other like-minded uh, believers from ar- across the country. Uh, the TCT network is, is a network that we're a part of that I think best embodies the heart of what Restoration Church is all about. Uh, the vision statement of the TCT network says it all. It says, we exist to treasure Christ together. Isn't that great? It's a great mission statement. Uh, And how it is we do that, we are a network of churches joyfully serving pastors and supporting churches to start new Christ-treasuring churches. Isn't that a great mission statement? A great way in which to to go. And this this little network, guys, oozes Jesus. Hopefully you heard that in those words. It oozes Christ. This little group of churches loves Jesus, is humble, is kind, and wants to see Christ magnified all over the world. And so that's what we're about at Restoration Church. I trust that's what Temple Baptist is about treasuring Christ together. Uh, And so I'm starting uh, the sermon this way because that's really what this passage is all about. That's what every passage in the Bible is about, but in particular, this passage is about. The gospel according to Luke uh, is about the king and the kingdom. The king is Jesus. The kingdom is Jesus's. And so last week we considered the birth of Jesus and we thought about the joy that attended that event. Uh, and I mentioned uh, that I preached that, by the way, at the network retreat, that I preached, the, the, uh, I preached the, the birth of Christ last week, at which time one of the pastors at the retreat says, you know, a smart pastor would have made that happen at Advent, uh, which reminds me of the other reason I'm glad I'm part of that network, because we can laugh at each other. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, today we're going to consider, though, the days that follow that birth, the days that follow that birth, from his circumcision, Jesus' circumcision, all the way to an incident that occurred when he was 12. And all the way through it, I want you to notice the joy that all those who hope in God have when they consider Jesus. Uh, in particular, the fulfillment of Christ and all of God's promises in his word found their completion in Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is our treasure. That's what we're going to see today. Jesus, we can see salvation in him, see salvation in him, and we treasure him. That's the whole big idea. If you tune out at some point, come back to that statement and you should find your home there. All right. And so we, we pick up the story here on verse 21. We see that on the eighth day after his birth, Jesus was circumcised. And then sometime after that, Joseph and Mary, they leave the barn there in Bethlehem and they make the six mile trek up to Jerusalem in order to obey the laws of purification. Uh, these laws are the laws given by Moses to God's people century before, centuries before Mary and Joseph's time. They're understood to be God's word, these laws are. Uh, Which explains why Joseph and Mary are being so careful to live them out. Uh, You can read about these laws in Leviticus chapter 12 and in Exodus chapter 13. In fact, if you look at verse 23, that's actually a quote from Exodus 13, 2 and verse 12. 
And so because of this, we know then, when you go back and read those passages in Exodus, we know that 33 days have passed. So we've moved forward in the story, 33 days. They've left the sleepy village of Bethlehem for the busy city of Jerusalem. We can imagine them going to the heart of the city where the temple was in order to make a sacrifice as the word prescribed. And as we see there in verse 24, apparently they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that is one sentence taken from Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. That's in the Old Testament, centuries before Mary and Joseph's time, where it says that you, if you cannot afford to sacrifice a lamb, you can sacrifice one of those two, the turtle doves or the pigeons. And that indicates, guys, that just as we predicted before, Mary and Joseph are not wealthy. In fact, when we pair it with the fact that they're growing up in Nazareth, one would uh, assume that these Two, Mary and Joseph, are growing up in poverty. Growing up in poverty. Which reveals to us that God does not uh, lack favor to, towards those that are in poverty. Right? There are false teachers that say that regularly from pulpits with Bibles open. God loves the poor. He loves the wealthy, as we will see. In fact, Jesus will even go on to say in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We can't help but wonder if maybe Jesus had his parents, his earthly parents in mind when he said that. But as they made their way to the temple, another character is introduced into the story. So, so far we've been introduced to the aged priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, the baby boy John. We've been introduced into the shepherds that are keeping watch of their flocks by night. And now we get to meet a new guy, a guy by the name of Simeon. This is one of the guys that I want to meet in the early days of my trip to heaven. I love this God, this historical figure of Simeon. Simeon is there in Jerusalem. We don't know much about him other than some key facts that we see in the text there. We see that he's righteous and devout, meaning he's right with God. He's devoted to God. He was waiting on the consolation of Israel. More on that in a moment. And importantly, the Holy Spirit we see is upon him for it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, verse 26, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now guys, don't miss that. Don't miss that statement there. It's important. The promise is not that he had some revelation about a Messiah. Some people teach that, that that's what Simeon had. That's not the promise. Look at it in verse 26. It's right in front of you. The promise is he already knew about the Messiah because he'd been studying the Bible. Right? The promise is that he wouldn't die before he saw him. Before he saw him with his own eyes. And also, don't lose sight of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've been noting this as we've gone along. You'll notice the Holy Spirit has come up a lot in these early chapters, some ten times already. And you'll notice that every time He, the Spirit, comes upon someone or fills someone, you'll notice the circumstances in some ways directed to Jesus. Right? So Mary, we remember, is filled with the Spirit and conceives Jesus. Zechariah is filled with the Spirit and prophesies about Jesus. Baby John the baptizer leaps in the womb in the nearness of the mother of Jesus. And here in verse 27, Simeon came in the Spirit to the temple where Jesus was. See, the Spirit just draws people in to Jesus. Revealing the the work of the person of the Holy Spirit is to magnify, to glorify, to draw people to Jesus. That's His work and He's happy to do it. 
And so off Simeon goes. He gets the sense. The Spirit is upon him. He gets the sense from the Spirit. Jesus is there in the temple. The day has finally come. If this were a movie, we can imagine a camera kind of following the aging man as he moves with hurried excitement towards the temple because he knows today is the day. He's going to see him. Surely he sensed this is the day. This is the day. I'm going to see Jesus. The day that I've been waiting for, I'm going to finally happen. He's moving through the busy streets of Jerusalem. Off he goes. Maybe he bumps into a neighbor. He steps on the sandal of another guy. Sorry about that. He moves over, turns a corner, he looks left and right, and there he sees a couple. A little teenage girl holding a baby. Maybe Joseph standing next to her. And he knows. There they are. There he is. There's the one. We can imagine, just as we have before, that Joseph, he's already played the role, in my imagination, of playing the part of the bouncer. Remember the shepherds? I, I just imagine they're running in from they've seen the angels and they run in and they burst into the whatever the barn or the hole in the ground is where the animals are and they're standing there and Joseph's like, Who are you guys? What are you doing? And they tell him and then they the shepherds gaze at Jesus. Here Simeon comes up, some aging man. Mary and Joseph don't know who this guy is. Simeon very excited, looking at the baby, not in a creepy way, in a beautiful way, right? Just loving this moment. And Joseph lets him in to talk or to see or to even to hold Jesus. Look at verse twenty eight. He even, he, after telling them that we can imagine Mary just giving Jesus to Simeon, the baby Jesus, the 33-year-old, 33-day-old Jesus. And, and Simeon takes him up in his arms and notice the first words after he takes up Jesus in his arms. He blesses God. That's what all of us should do when given the sight of Christ. Bless God. He blesses God and he does so while holding that little baby in his arms as the couple looks on and with joy so full in his heart. And I can imagine tears in his eyes uh, as he holds Jesus and he looks at him and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. that You have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Just holding the baby, speaking those words over it. Verse 33, Mary and Joseph, once again, marvel at what was said about Jesus. And so do we, right? We marvel at these words. Simeon then blesses the couple and says some words that sober the wondrous moment. He looks at Mary, Simeon does, and says, this child, as he holds him, There in the temple, busy people all around, holds the baby, looks at Mary and says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So if I might be so bold as to kind of contextualize these words, Simeon says to Mary and Joseph, this child will cause some to rise and many to fall. He's going to expose people for who they really are down deep in their hearts. And while it will be glorious, it will be hard. It will especially be hard for you, Mary. He's going to capture your heart so much, it's going to break you to see what they do to him. As if all of this isn't enough, we we get introduced to another person. The godly and impressive woman, Anna, the prophetess. Yet again, we have an old woman. She's at least 84. She's possibly over 100. So she's had a prolonged amount of singleness, we see here. But she's had a hard but hopeful life, Anna has. 
She was married to a man who died just seven years into their marriage. So friend, you should know that the Bible is familiar with the pain of unwelcome and unexpected loss. But this loss doesn't drive Anna away from the Lord. Instead, we see that it drives Anna to the Lord. uh, She stays there in the temple all of her days, worshiping by fasting and praying night after night, day after day, there in the temple. Like Simeon, she was waiting on the Messiah. And it appears that about the same time as Simeon is speaking over Jesus, Anna comes along. I, I can imagine Simeon and Anna knowing each other well. I mean, just think about it. They're probably seeing each other all the time. And as they come together, they probably had tons of prayer meetings and times of singing together and weeping together and laughing together. I'm sure, I'm sure Simeon told Anna about his promise that the Lord had given to him. And such that maybe Anna's there in the temple and she looks up and sees Simeon with a big old happy smile on his face, holding that baby going, that's got to be him. And she goes over there to them. And perhaps that's what caused her to know again that that's the Lord's Christ. Simeon holding that child. Verse 38 says, She gave thanks to God and then she does what all of those who hope in God do after they meet Jesus. What is it? Look at it. She spoke of Him to all, not some, but all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. She sees Jesus and she goes and talks about Jesus to all those that are hoping in redemption. Christians speak of Jesus to all who want redemption. That's what we do. We gladly do that. It's a joy to do it. We bless God in it. And by the way, since we're talking about Anna, don't you just love how the Lord has had so many examples of godly women in the Bible? Right? Ladies, here's a good model for you. We don't have many older women in our church. That's just sort of where we are to disciple you. And so let me encourage you, let Anna disciple you. Let her disciple you. Read these verses, meditate on them, ladies, and and let Anna teach you how to follow Jesus as a godly woman. Even for some of you who are in a season of prolonged singleness. In the midst of disappointment and loss, we see Anna's going and she's worshiping the Lord. She's praying. She's fasting. She's giving thanks to God. She's telling others about all that Jesus has come to redeem us. And so, ladies, join Anna in her joy of Jesus. Devote yourself to Him. And by the way, since we're also talking about aged widows, let's recall here also that the Lord has used a lot of older saints in this story so far. Have you noticed that? Right? He's used women. He's used older saints. We've already seen that in just two chapters. Zechariah, Elizabeth are aged folks. More than likely, Simeon is an aged man. Anna, we know, is an aged woman. Thus reminding us, friends, that it's never too late to be used by God. Never too late. So we might live in a culture that exalts youth and pushes the aging aside, but the Lord loves to use older saints. He loves it. The Bible says that we should honor them. And so just for instance, this week at the retreat, Andy and I sought out an older retired couple just to spend time with him, just to learn from them and listen to them. I set up a meeting just yesterday or day before with another aged saint here in our city just to spend time with them and learn from them. Aged saints often are more uh, sober-minded. They oftentimes pray more than we do. They oftentimes understand sort of to need to be patient, how God is not in a big hurry. And so God loves to use older saints, which is one of the reasons, by the way, one of my favorite things that we do at Restoration Church as a church is to care for the, for the older folks at Friendship Terrace. 
Just love that ministry. That we can go and care for those that most of our society is just trying to push out to the side. But no, we understand that there is value, there's dignity in these older saints. And we want to preach the gospel to them and love them and spend time with them. And so I don't know about you, but I am not satisfied with a church that is full of people that look just like me and they're at the same stage of life as me. I don't want that kind of church. If that's the kind of church you want, then you should, well, let me help you find that church somewhere else. It's not going to be here. We want all different kinds of people, right? In the story, we see the poor. Later, we're going to meet the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea, right? The poor and the rich, men and women, the old and the young, not just people that look like us and are in the same stage of life. That's who is reflected in the kingdom of God. That's what's in heaven. That's what we pray more of in this church. May it be. May it be. Well, we've got a little more of the story to tell here, so let's fast forward now some 12 years in the story to the boy Jesus. And then we'll come back and make a couple brief observations. So Luke tells us that after they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Now, some of you know, like, well, Nathan, wasn't there one more step in that journey? Yeah, so in Matthew's account, we know that there's one more step in between this one and Galilee. Right? Mary and Joseph go down to Egypt because they'd heard that Herod, King Herod at the time, found out about this king. And as a result, he's going around ordering that children two years or less be killed. So Mary and Joseph are drawn out by the Spirit to go down to Egypt. Out of Egypt, the Lord calls his son. So the wise men, we know from Matthew's account, uh, showed up and they told Herod that there was this king that they were looking for. Herod didn't like that. He was trying to destroy Jesus by killing all these children. And since Herod had it to be two years or younger, more than likely, sorry to sort of destroy your nativity scenes, but more than likely the wise men are not there at the birth. So since they're looking for a two-year-old or less, more than likely they're showing up a bit later. But regardless, Mary and Joseph, they do eventually make their way back to Galilee, just as Luke says, and Jesus, we see, grows strong and is filled with wisdom and God's favor was upon him. You'll notice in verse 52, same words there. Now, the incarnation of Christ as the God-man is so mysterious. It's hard to understand all of it. We should expect that, by the way. We are not God. If we have the expectation to know everything about God, then you've got bad expectations. right? I can barely know anything about, I don't know, cooking. Uh, that's a bad example. Something else. right? There's, we, we, God is God. He's infinite. But nevertheless, what the text seems to be indicating is, is that he's getting older and while maintaining his deity, he's growing wiser in the sight of men. Which leads us to this interesting story when he was 12. So I'm sure all of you have stories. I do. When you get together with your families, right? You tell stories about that. Remember that one time, right? And you get together and everybody laughs. I'm imagining that this is the story that Mary and Joseph and Jude and James, when they all get together, this is the story they remember about the childhood of Jesus. It's the only thing we know about the childhood of Jesus, the only story we have. And by the way, in here we get the first words of Jesus. Uh, and so this is a true and authoritative story. It goes like this. Every year, Mary and Joseph would do as they were told from God's word. They would travel the five-day walk. That's how far Nazareth was from Jerusalem. Five days uh, every year. Uh, and that would be roughly around the end of our month of March. And they would travel there uh, for a week. This was sort of like the new year uh, on the calendar of God's people. It was one of the most important days of the year for uh, the Jewish people. The Lord had called them to do this every single year. Not to worship the Lord in the Feast of Passover at home, but to go to Jerusalem to do this. And so go to Jerusalem celebrate the Feast of Passover. 
And so, for instance, when I was a boy, I would go to Nashville, Tennessee every single summer. That was our tradition. Right? I'm sure you have those traditions. So we learned something about the family of Matthew, uh, Mary and Joseph. That was their tradition, to travel five days, once a year, down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. Well, for much more important Jesus reasons, Jesus, he looks forward, we can imagine, to this annual trip to the bustling city of Jerusalem. Remember, he's out in this kind of farming town, and he's really looking forward to going to the kind of New York City of his day. But most importantly, though, he wants to go there to worship the Lord, his Father. They would go there to worship the Lord as all of God's people would to descend upon that city to remember God's grace in times past. That's why they're going. It's similar to our, it's actually connected to our practice of the Lord's Supper. We recall Jesus administering the Lord's Supper at a feast of Passover. So uh, we recall that God delivered his people of old in haste. That's the unleavened bread. That's what it's supposed to mean. And by the way, that's why we, just so you know, that's why we at Restoration Church use unleavened bread. For the same reason. To remember, God delivered His people quickly that night out of Egypt through the Red Sea and off into the land of promise. They're going to celebrate that, uh, that, uh, uh, that work to re- be reminded of that. What they would have done is they would have celebrated that feast, that feast on the first night and then they would have eaten unleavened bread for the next uh, six or seven days. And on that last day, they would have done no work. There in Jerusalem. Again, remembering God's grace in times past that they might trust Him for grace in the future. But after they're done, they, they leave. They, they would travel in packs. They would travel in groups away from the city back to their homes. And according to verse 44, Mary and Joseph have gone a day's journey when they notice that the 12-year-old Jesus wasn't around. And we can imagine Mary going, uh, Joseph, have you seen Jesus? Right? right? And Joseph's like, uh, no, I thought you knew where he was. No, did you know? Where he, I don't know. We, we can't lose the son of God, Joseph. Where is he? Right? So they hightail it back a day's journey and get back into Jerusalem. And they search around. And the text tells us they look for three days in this city of Jerusalem. They're looking around for three days. Now, Jerusalem is at this time about 80,000 people, scholars tell us, which is roughly about the same size as West Palm Beach, Florida, about the same size. Is that town. And they're looking around in that city. It's not a small city. They're looking around in it. And verse 46 says, they finally found him in the temple. They found him in the temple. And when they come upon him, uh, Mary and Joseph come upon him, they find him. Remember, they haven't seen him in like four or five days. There he is in the temple holding court. So much. It was, what a fun thought. Think about what that might have been. They see him, they're like, ah, what? You know, like this all. They run up on him, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, the text tells us. And asking questions. And given the fact that verse 47 says that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It appears as though Jesus is the teacher here. Amongst these groups. So could you imagine being Mary and Joseph strolling up on Jesus. Teaching the teachers in the temple. The boy Jesus. They're sort of going, yep, 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 Rabbi, that's right. That's right, good, good. Let me ask you another question. Mary and Joseph come, oh, hey. You know, this sort of thing happening. And we see Mary says, Jesus, why have you treated us so? We've been looking all over the place for you. And we know from verse 51 that Jesus, by the way, was not sinning. He wasn't disobeying the command to obey father and mother. But instead, look at Jesus' reply in verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now the text tells us that Mary and Joseph don't quite understand this passage. I'm imagining Luke talking to Mary, giving his account. Remember, he's writing down this account. And Mary said, that, and when Jesus told us that, we didn't really understand what he meant. 
But what, did you, what, what Jesus appears to be saying is, is if you thought that I was lost, why would you not have known to come to the temple first? This is my Father's house. And I'm doing my Father's business. Don't you know that? Shouldn't you have come here first? In other words, let me give you an example. If my son Elisha was the next known to be the next Steve Jobs, and we had visited Northern California, you should have known to go to Apple's headquarters, right? To look for it, right? Or if my son Judah was the next great, you know, Babe Ruth, and we visited Cooperstown, New York, you should have known. Go to the Hall of Fame. Look for him there. That's the kind of sentiment that's happening here. At the age of 12, though, what, what seems to be indicating here, Jesus already understands who he is and why he's come. He already understands it. That is already in his mind. He already understands that. That's what Luke wants us to see. And even more than that, it's significant to note how Jesus refers to the temple. Did you see it? Remember, the temple was the heart, the center of the religious life of God's people, which I'm sure is why the saints back in 1902 uh, which was normally East Street Baptist Church, changed their name to Temple Baptist Church because they understand the center of the temple and the heart of the worship of God's people. Notice how Jesus refers to that temple. He says it's my father's house. My father's house. So Mary says, your father and I, and his response is, I think this is deliberate in Luke's writing, but I'm in my father's house. Now we could say a lot about Jesus' understanding as calling the father, his father, which would not have been very common back in this time. But nevertheless, Jesus not only believes the father is his, but as the son of the father, this house, he understands, is also his house. And he's teaching in it. This, he understands himself to belong here. So if you, were, uh, if you were to wind the clock back to when I was 12, and you were to go knock on the door at 1747 Horton Drive in Orange Park, Florida, I would have answered the door. And I would open up and they would say, where's your father? And I said, well, my father's not here, but this is my father's house. Right? You, would under, you would know that this was also my house that I was living at. And so you know that it would be my house. That's the understanding Jesus has of the temple. Center of worship for centuries. And the very same place, by the way, Mary and Joseph would have taken him when he was a baby. The very same place that Simeon held him when Anna uh, held him in the same place where Anna was 12 years before. That was his father's. And so by extension, it was his. It was his home. A massive claim from a 12-year-old boy. Jesus knew and Luke wants Theophilus to know and he wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God and He belongs in the center of our worship. In the center of our worship. Teaching us and astonishing us just as He did those teachers 2,000 years ago. That's what Luke wants us to see. Which then leads us into making two observations, two applications from this passage, Luke 2, 22-52. Two observations. First, note the centrality of the Word of God in this passage. Centrality of the Word of God in worship. Note there's nine references to the Bible in these 34 verses. Take a look at it. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 is the purification according to the law of Moses. Again, the law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible. Verse 23, he quotes Exodus 13. Verse 24, he quotes Leviticus 12. Verse 25 refers to the consolation of Israel, which could have only been known by the word of God. Verse 27, uh, it says, according to the custom of the Bible, of the word of God, of the law of God, they brought Jesus into the temple. 
verse 32 is a quotation of Isaiah 42 and 49 as a fulfillment. Verse 38 references the redemption of Jerusalem, which again would have only been known by the word. Verse 39, they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Verse 41 and 42 reveals Mary and Joseph's obedience to Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 16 regarding the practice of the feast of the Passover. And even Luke makes it clear that this was all done according to custom. In fact, the words according to or as it is written are used some seven times in this passage alone. So in those little journaling Bibles you have, just bracket those every time you see it. According to, according to. Now why is Luke doing this? Why is he putting so much emphasis on the fulfillments of the Word? On the teaching of the Word? Why is he doing that? Why is he putting so much emphasis on that? Why is it there? Remember, Luke is writing so that Theophilus, so that we might have certainty regarding the things we have been taught about Christ. Remember, that's what he's doing. And Luke's highlighting the Word of God is revealing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Word. That He is the Word. That's why He's doing it. He wants Theophilus to see. He wants us to see. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Bible. He's the answer. He wants us to see. That's why He's pulling it out. He's teasing it out for us to see. Luke wants us to know that everything God promised years before is finding its answer in Jesus. And that shows us two things. It shows us first off that the Bible is trustworthy. And therefore it shows us that God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy, giving us all the more certainty regarding the things that we have been taught about Jesus. As I said last week, this story, friends, is no fable, it's no myth, it's no legend, nor has it been corrupted in translation, as some would claim. There are many in the world that would have a vested interest in getting you to believe that the Bible is not true. Many have a vested interest in that. Satan has a vested interest in that. Even our own sinful inclinations have a vested interest in and trying to get us to not believe the Bible. Follow the Bible. To know that it's reliable. Which is why God has been so gracious to provide it for us. And to help us see that there is certainty. There is specificity in the Word that has been fulfilled in Christ. So that we might then worship Him. And follow Him. And so church family, this Word is worthy. This Bible is worthy of your trust. It's worthy of your devotion. Therefore, as it says of Jesus in verse 51, it's worthy of your submission to it. Don't forget that. So we are increasingly told that freedom is found in throwing off any chains that would bind our inclinations. And guys, if that were true, if freedom were found in throwing off my base inclination, if that were true, uh, or actually, it would be true if my base inclinations were right more often than not. That'd be a good thing to do. We should pass laws to like make sure that whatever we think or feel should be legislated. There's one big problem with that. We all know it. Everybody in the room knows it. Everybody on planet Earth knows it. Our base inclinations are often off. They're not quite right. Sometimes they are, but often they're not. Which is why we have speed limits and prisons. Right? Our appetites are clouded and they're often misdirected. Therefore, we need laws to govern society. In particular, more importantly, our life as a church. But how is it we know which laws are good? How is it which we know laws are bad? Which laws are bad? How is it we know uh, what we should follow with our feelings and what we should not follow with our feelings? How do we know what the good life is and what the good life is not? It's found in God's Word. It's found in God's Word. 
He made the world and He's good. He is love. Therefore, when we follow His word, we follow His design, which means we follow the designer's intentions for our lives. Is it hard to follow the word? Amen, right? Yes. Right? Is it hard to understand that oftentimes our inclinations uh, are not grounded in the word? We don't actually want to obey it. Yes, that's true. But that, guys, that's why we need a word from outside of ourselves to govern the inside of ourselves if we are going to know, know God and love God and live for God. Outside of ourselves. So here's a cheesy reference that made me think about this. When I was growing up, there was this band called Roxette. I know about Roxette. Yeah, and they had this song. I really liked it. I actually heard it the other day. It's made me think of it and put it in the sermon. Uh, it was called Listen to Your Heart. I love this song. I've sang it a thousand times. And the song kind of goes, it's all about this kind of messy situation. You know, this Roxette gal is speaking to this girl that's in this messed up relationship. And, and the point of the story, the chorus goes, listen to your heart when he's calling for you. I want to sing it right now. I'm not going to do it. Listen to your heart when he's calling for you. Listen to your heart. There's nothing else you can do. Yes, there is. You cannot listen to your heart. That's the other thing you can do. Right? It's probably your heart that got you in the messed up relationship in the first place. Don't listen to it. Listen to the voice of God. Listen to the voice of God. Listen to those that want to counsel you in the word of God. That's a better chance. That's a better way to go. Right? That's a better way to go. Our hearts are often misdirected. We need the voice of God in our lives. And to be clear, guys, that doesn't mean that the Word's going to answer all of your problems. doesn't mean that it's going to answer all of your questions. But it will certainly guide you into the good life. The most important questions. It will prove certain. It will prove a stable handle to hold on to when the world is pushing you around like a washing machine. It's one, the Bible is a trusted, proven, certain thing we can hold on to. And so as we give ourselves to it day after day, week after week, year after year, our hearts are changed. The Spirit uses it to change our hearts. And we can then increasingly then, we can begin to listen to our hearts as it's mapping more regularly onto His Word. Because our hearts are woven to the heart of Christ and His Word and His identity. And so this passage shows us That the Word is trustworthy, which means God is trustworthy. So give yourself to the Word by reading it, by singing it, by praying it, by speaking it to others. And watch what happens when you do. When your heart is woven to the Word of God, watch what happens when you do. This is the second observation I want to make. Namely, the thing that's going to happen is that in Christ, we will have the good life. In Christ, we will have joy. In Christ, we will have treasure. That's what's going to happen when you give yourself to the Word. I see eight things here. I'm going to go quick. I see eight things here that we, that we see that Jesus is for us that believe. I'm going to go through them quickly, so just note them. I'm going to take them straight out of the text. So again, you've got those journaling Bibles, your own Bibles, just circle these words and go back to them. So there's eight of them. You'll have to double up on one day. Light and, light and glory would be a good one. But just why don't you just take, if you don't know what to do this week, take each of these words and meditate on them every single day. Eight things that Christ is for us. First off, we see from this passage, Christ is our consolation. That is to say, Christ is our comfort. Verse 25, we see Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation means comfort. And I can't help but think that Simeon was thinking as he waited, oftentimes about Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 4. 
Because that's all about the consolation of Israel. Let me read it for you. Comfort, comfort my people. We could say, consolation, consolation my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. In other words, it's going to be good. The word of God is certain because Christ has certainly fulfilled it. Therefore, Christ is certainly our consolation. He's our comfort. He's our comfort. Jesus says later that in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. Have peace and consolation. I have overcome the world, he says. Simeon was waiting on Jesus because he was waiting on comfort. Jesus was his comfort. And don't you need comfort? Find it in Jesus. He knows us. He loves us. He intends to care for us. Therefore, find comfort in Him. Second, Christ is our hope. He's our hope. Right? The world is desperate for hope right now, and, and as well it should be. And in its pursuit of freedom and joy in the world, mankind so often tries to hope in mankind. And that's not gone well, historically. But we know ourselves well enough to know that hope is going to come from, again, the outside of ourselves. And that hope is found in Christ. Simeon was waiting on the comfort of Israel, which means he not only found comfort in Christ, he found hope in Christ. That word waiting is an idea that he's hoping in Him. He was hoping that comfort would come. And by hope, I don't mean I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. It's a certain hope. Since Jesus has fulfilled all of God's promises in His Word, we have reason to have a confident hope in Him that He will lift up all of our valleys and He will lay low all of our mountains. We can hope in Him for that. Christ is our comfort, therefore Christ is our hope, and thirdly, Christ is our peace. Is our peace. Remember the angel song from last week? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom He is pleased. And clearly the Lord's favor, clearly the Lord's pleasure rested on Simeon who was hoping in Christ for his comfort. Look at verse 29. You see it there. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart. How? In peace. In peace. How many of you have fears? How many of you are disquieted? Find those fears rested in Jesus. Like Simeon did. Find peace in Jesus. Uh, Simeon was ready to die. Simeon was ready to die. Some of you that know me because of the way my dad died, I've struggled with the fear of dying. And man, this gives me so much peace in that fear. That I can look at Jesus and know that no matter what comes of me, I'll have peace. Simeon was ready to die. And the reason why he was ready to die is because he knew that salvation was possible, which is the fourth thing. Look at verse 30. Christ is our salvation. He is our comfort. Uh, he uh, is our hope. He is our peace because He is our salvation. I love these words from Simeon. Notice he doesn't say that he understood salvation when he saw Jesus or even that he had salvation. Well, look what, what does the text say? It says he saw salvation. So friend that is new to Christianity, you're trying to understand it. You need to know, friend, first thing, salvation is a person. 
Salvation is a person. That's what Simeon sees. Salvation is not something we kind of work up with Jesus' help. Salvation is a person. Is a person. No amount of religiosity, good deeds, or being a good person can save us. Do you hear me? I'm going to say that again. Every religion on planet earth teaches that. Christianity does not teach that. No amount of religiosity, good deeds, or being a good person can save us. Salvation, again, needed to come from without, not from within. And it came in Jesus. He is our salvation. Simeon knew that. That's why he hoped in the comfort of Jesus. That's why he had peace in Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can give us peace with God and peace with one another. Can't come from me. Can't come from you. Can't come from the government. Can't come from the next 501c3. It only comes ultimately in Jesus. And the reason for that is because Jesus lived the life, the peaceful, godly, faithful life in obedience to the word that nobody else on planet earth has ever lived. He's the only one. So if I were to say to you, I'm a super nice guy and I got to know you and I said, I'll die for your sins. You should go. That's not going to work, bro. You're, max, you're messed up like me. Right? You should know that. But what we find in Jesus is He can die for our sins because He was sinless. And so God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on, on the behalf of those that love Him in order that we might be like Simeon, have the righteousness of God within us, have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is able to do that. That's what He did on the cross. That's why we have this cross right back here to remind us that the center of our faith... What happened at the cross is he's paying the debt of our sins because only he could do it. And he did it in love. He did it in kindness. And he was able to do it because he was the son of God. He was in the father's house. He was teaching and he was true. And we know that that payment is received because of the resurrection. And so therefore, if you trust him, you can have salvation. You can't have it anywhere else and in anyone else. But you can't have it in him. Which is why he's our peace. Which is why he's our comfort. Which is why he's our hope. And the only way that we can come to know that salvation is by light and glory, which is the fifth thing that Jesus is for us. Christ is our light and our glory. Here's the thing that you combine on day five. This would be like Wednesday or Thursday. Look at verse 32. You see it right there. When Simeon says that Jesus is light for revelation to the Gentiles, he means that Jesus is the one that turns on the light to our darkened state of reality. In particular, to the Gentiles, that would be non-Jews, which is probably most, if not all of us in the room. The Jewish people, we recall, again, if you're not familiar with Christianity, the Old Testament is out God's work amongst the Jews, about not the Gentiles, not the non-Jews. They had revelation from God. They had the word from God. They had prophets. They had his word. The non-Jews had not, did not have that. And so upon the arrival of Jesus, the Gentiles, the nations, those of us that are outside the Jewish people's, would now be able to see salvation. We'd be able to see it. We would have light to now see it because he's come. Remember Zechariah's song from a couple weeks ago? Remember that? Speaking of John uh, and Jesus, he says, Zechariah does, he sings, verse, chapter 1, verse 76 to 79, and you, child, speaking of John here, will be called the prophet of the Most High. That's Jesus. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because, love this, of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall, give, shall visit us from on high. To what? What's those three, next three words? To give light to those who sit in darkness. That's the Gentiles. And in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of, there's the word again, peace. And so friend, if you are a non-Jew, 
which is, again, probably most of us in the room, rejoice that Jesus is light to you. He's light to you. He helps you see what you need and find its answer. So because then Christ is light to the nations, he also is glory to God's people Israel, which is the Gentiles that believe get grafted into Israel through faith in Christ. So he becomes our glory. It's Christ's glory that gives us glory. Don't forget that. In Christ we are made glorious in the sight of God because we were given light which gave us salvation, which gave us peace, which gives us hope, which gives us comfort. And verse 34, sixth thing, Christ is our revelation. He's our revelation. See, what Simeon means here is that the biblical Jesus is going to manifest who stands where. That's going to be what he does. He's going to make it clear if you're a sheep or a goat. If you're in or you're out. If you're walking the broad road that leads to destruction or the narrow road that leads to life. He's going to make that clear, Jesus is. There were many in Jesus' day and there are many in our day that claim salvation. That claim to know God. They claim to even believe in Jesus. Yet when Jesus shows up and reveals what actually is peace, what actually is comfort, what actually is salvation, He reveals then who is standing where. Verse 35 says that in the coming of Christ, hearts will be revealed. That is, all the external religion, all the confession will be exposed because the light of the gospel will shine upon the heart and expose it for what is actually there, not just what you say is there. It's what Jesus does. Jesus reveals where everyone is because Christ is the world's revelation. He exposes the hearts of man. Which leads us to the next thing. I'm going to try this. One of our brothers at the TCT retreat did this from an African American community. I think we can learn from this. We're going to say it out loud together. Remember, Jesus is our redemption. Say redemption. There we go. Jesus, see that worked. We can do that, right? Can we keep doing that? I like that. Jesus is our redemption. Christ is our redemption. That's what Anna was hoping in. And since Jesus came, she knew that redemption had come. Verse 38, you can see it there. Redemption means to buy back. Jesus was buying back all those whom God was pleased with from before the foundation of the world. His blood, Jesus' blood, was the payment that forgave them, that forgave us that believe. Therefore, in Him we then have redemption. In Christ we have been redeemed. We have been bought out of darkness. We've been brought into the light of God's love. Therefore, finally, eighthly, lastly, Christ is our treasure. Say treasure. Treasure. Christ is our treasure. He's our treasure. Look at verse 51. We see it again. Mary, once again, treasured up all these things. Where? Not in her mind. In her heart. Deep down in her heart. Mary treasured Jesus. One of the the most fun things I've had in studying this passage. I always used to read that passage and think Mary was treasuring Jesus and thinking about Jesus like I would think about my son. I think there's more going on than that. I think she understands who this is. And she's treasuring up the Son of God. Mary treasured Jesus. And the reason she treasured Jesus is the same reason all those that treasure Jesus do. Because He's our comfort. Because He's our hope. Because He's our peace. Because He's our salvation. Because He's our light and glory. Because He's our revelation. Because He's our redemption. Therefore, He is our what? Treasure. He's our treasure. And here we are, right back at the beginning of this sermon. Treasuring Christ 
together. That's what we do in the church. That's what we do in the Christian life. We treasure Christ together. We're better together than we are apart. Treasure Christ together. We want to plant churches all over the globe that treasure Christ together. That's what the church is. That's what the church does. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking about the Christian faith, you're trying to understand the Christian faith, and you want to know the heart of the Christian faith, there it is. We treasure Christ. He's our hope. He's our joy. He's our peace. He's our comfort. Because, and we love His Word because the Word leads us to Him. We follow our hearts. It oftentimes won't lead us to Him. We follow God's Word, His good Word, which oftentimes disagrees with our hearts. It leads us to our peace. It leads us to our treasure. It leads us to our joy. And God does this by the power of His Spirit through grace. Through grace. None of us earn this. I am messed up. Spend five minutes with me and you'll know that. But I love Jesus. He changed my life. That's why I preach about it. Because I treasure it. That's why the members of this church join this church. That's why Temple did what it did. We treasure Christ and we do it together. Not apart. We need each other to do this work. We need each other to have comfort. We need each other to remind us of each other of the hope. When we see other people going off and looking for other hopes and treasures, we've got to find each other and help each other come back in and say, it's Jesus that we treasure. Don't do it. Don't go over there. Follow God's Word. Come in here. Treasure Christ. That's what we're trying to do. Because Christ is our treasure. He's our treasure. And so what a joy it is that we get to do this as a church every single week to remind us of our treasure what we sing about here in just a moment. We sing about the treasure of Christ, our hope and our great joy, the consummation of the ages, the consolation of Israel, and the consummation of all things. And Jesus promises, just as all His promises have been true, Acts 3.21, He will return and restore all things to Himself. And that's the day we wait on. Let's pray and give thanks to God. We treasure You, Jesus. You are our hope. You are our peace. You are our comfort. You are revelation. You are our redemption. You're all we have. And so God, may our hearts treasure You and enjoy You every day, just as we see these saints doing of old. May we do it all the more and may we do it together so that we might be certain regarding what we have been taught, that others would know and come into that treasure as well. We pray it in Jesus' magnificent and glorious and powerful name. Amen.